Hello, and welcome to The Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And in this episode, we're discussing uh, Wayward Witch. And we're back in the Brooklyn Bruja series. So this is the third book in the series by Zoraida Cordova. The novel follows the youngest Mortise sister, Rose's story, finding herself, discovering the extent of her powers, and learning more about her family after her and her dad are transported through a portal to the magical kingdom of Adas. Rose teams up with several magical beings to rid Adas of, quote, the rot, a mysterious pestilence that is overtaking the land. If you're not already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Library Coven. We love chatting with you, Magical Coven, and we'd love to do it more. Let us know if you have any ideas for things you'd like to add to our feed, um, any pictures you'd like us to take, or anything you want to know about us. Initial reactions. Okay. I'm not going to lie, because I wouldn't lie to y'all, but I was a little disappointed with this book. I really love Labyrinth Lost and Bruja Born, and I really love Rose that we get to see in those stories. So I was really excited for Wayward Witch, but it was kind of a travel story, which isn't my thing. I can see why people would like this story and being in Adas, but it wasn't my favorite in the trilogy, and I was I was disappointed. <laughs> Aww. Aw, thanks for being honest. Uh, I know. I feel bad saying it because I love the other two books, but I just didn't love this one. I agree that it wasn't my favorite in the trilogy. And at the same time, I did really enjoy being in Adas and meeting more magical people and seeing more magical powers. And I'm also a fan of those like, let's work together narratives. So when it was like, the guardians of Adas, (laughs) I thought that was cool. I was into that. Um, I like the folklore and at the same time I don't even know I don't it's just it's I don't, I don't know what to say I don't know what to say it's fine every book can't be our favorite so like that's also fine yeah but there's also still lots of great things to talk about about this book and like you can still not love something but like see the good parts of it yeah exactly and it was I thought it was a fast read mm-hmm mm-hmm I will say that I did, I sh- should just like mention, I listened to the audiobook and read the book because I have like an advanced listener copy of the audiobook. And the person that did the reading for the audiobook was fantastic. So um, I don't remember their name. I can just check real quick because I'm editing this anyways. <laughs> um, but I would probably listen to something that they narrated again. It's Almarie Gallera. Um the narration was fantastic, so I would recommend the narrator a whole bunch. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. Pretty much this whole story takes place in Adas. We're in Queens for a very short amount of time, um, mostly just for like maybe the first three or four chapters and at, in the epilogue. <laughs> right. Everything <laughs> else it. is in the magical place. Yeah. So I guess it kind of mirrors Labyrinth Lost in that way, which is kind of cool to see those two like bookended. Um, But I think because I really liked how Bruja Born took place in our real world, I was like, oh, that's cool. And then we're going to go to a new place and it'll be fine. But I just I like I don't think maybe I just wasn't mentally prepared for this for some reason. (laughs) I really liked the urban fantasy take of Bruja Born. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And this was 
like you said, a return to what we saw at the big, uh, with Alex's story so that there was like a lot more world building once again, which there mm-hmm. wasn't, didn't have to be in Bruja born as much. I don't think. Um, and I thought it was very, I'm don't, not sure what the adjective is I'm looking for, but I really liked how it was modeled after a Caribbean island or it's like was originally a Caribbean island and then they sank it or made, took it to the magical realm or whatever. Um, and how it's like supposed to be this paradise. But then, you know, when you re- like asterisk, like we're all realizing that paradise, you know, one person's paradise is another person's like hell. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's the that's the opposite I was looking for. <laughs> And maybe that's why I felt like a little off kilter for this story, because I think it was like the world is very similar to what we saw in Labyrinth Lost, um, where like the land is dying and like something has taken over. So it's just very similar. And maybe I just wasn't expecting that, I guess, you know. Yeah, that there were a very big structural similarities now that you're that I wasn't really putting together until you're talking about them to me. So. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't put together until you just mentioned about, like, it being paradise, and that's kind of what we get in Labyrinth Loss, is, like, a paradise that is, like, crumbling because of, like, bad magic. <laughs> and that is once more what we have here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we also move from Brooklyn to Queens, and I don't know very much about, like, I've been to New York, like, a few times in my life, so... I think that this is a lot more meaningful for folks who are from those areas. And I really like that they can connect to that. Um, I thought it was funny, the beef between the different high circles. And we saw like the aunties getting into it at Rose's death day. I thought I really liked those like little snippets. And then, yeah, those were the, like the most alive feeling parts um, to me, I guess. Maybe because they were easier for me to imagine, but I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. I also thought it's like interesting because I think in real life you do kind of see like the different boroughs kind of arguing about which borough is the best borough. So <laughs> it's kind of funny to see like like Rose is like, I don't want to live in Queens. And like when I think of Queens, I think of like the TV show King of Queens. And I'm like, oh, it's like white people and like maybe upper middle class, like <laughs> that, like that kind of stuff. I always think of Brooklyn as like being super hipstery, but I think that's like gentrification and like more recent anyways. Right, right. <laughs> I wonder if Sarita lives in New York. I'm not sure. I don't know. But that probably informs her opinion a little bit, if she does, (laughs) (laughs) about the different boroughs and, like, Brooklyn being better than Queens. (laughs) (laughs) We also see Rose learning the truth about the myths she had read about Adas. So she has, like, this book that she's reading constantly because she's, like, fascinated with those creatures. But mostly that... Um, King Ciro it um, said that he did a bunch of stuff that he definitely didn't do and he's like a huge liar and (laughs) (laughs) the worst (laughs) he's just like out here peacocking and taking credit for things that he didn't do and blaming what's wrong which is actually his fault on other people so you know like classic yeah so like all these myths about him just turn out to be like lies like they're kind of true. Like those things did happen, but he did not make them happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I really like this because I do think sometimes like, I think 
as people we forget that sometimes storytelling is also kind of like like especially with oral histories is kind of, can be kind of like playing telephone where like yeah. things might change over time um or that like the people in power especially because i'm not really sure how like rose and her family get these myths written down oh be- from that storyteller in avas yeah is what they're supposed to be from mm-hmm. but like i think it points out to the fact that like the person in power can have a lot of effect on the way the stories about them are told, especially if they're still alive at the time of their writing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like we all, there's a, how the past and history is narrated. Like we have a stake in it in the present. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. I was excited to see a wide array of magical characters from mermaids actually like river maids so not from the ocean from the rivers these she crab things wood sprites or fairies i'm not sure like what you call all these different if like there's the star power person (laughs) calliope is that her name Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i think so arco and edis uh lynn there's flying horses pegasus or pegasi i guess would that be the plural i like magical beings so this was fun yeah, it was really cool to, like, I think kind of similar to Labyrinth Lost, like, we get to see a lot more magical characters instead of just, like, um, magic being brought into the real world. Although we do kind of see that in Bruja Born because we're meeting, like, the people who are part of that, like, group of magical people. Thornhill Alliance. The Alliance, yeah, yeah. Which I'm still not clear about how that all works, but it's okay. No, I'm going to guess we might find out more if we get a Nova book. So yeah, <laughs> maybe fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. There's um, death day animal sacrifice. Again, we, we saw did we attend all of the death days. We did not attend Lula's. No, we do not see Lula's. Okay. And we actually, we get like um, a recap that they tried to do a death day for Nova. We don't actually see it. It's kind of like in the exposition. Um, but yeah, there was also a, an attempted death day for Nova that did not work. I just love all the different brujeria that we see, you know, all the potions, their mom's a healer. Then we also get even, I think you get to see even more, um, like visceral magical descriptions because the protagonist is the person who can like experience all these different kinds of magic, um, Mm -hmm. which kind of gets to your point about how Rose is called the siphon. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so she's like, we've. I guess we're kind of finding out that Rose might be much more similar to the Devourer from the from Labyrinth Lost, where she can take power from people. They call her the Siphon, and at the end, they call her the Leech, <laughs> <laughs> um, which I thought was really funny because she's like, obviously seems like like a little sister to everyone because she's so young. Um, but yeah, Rose is kind of figuring out like what her powers are that she didn't realize and kind of learning to control that because she I think part of her power is that she has like this craving to take power from people and kind of trying to overcome them mm-hmm. that was when Nova like her the refrain from Nova kept coming back to her like the remember yourself sort of thing so remembering like learning who you are in the context of these new powers and at the same time not letting yourself be irrevocably changed by the things that you do with the new powers Right. And also like even more important as she's in Adas because like the world makes her forget, like Adas makes her forget her, 
home and her siblings and she has like the bracelet from Nova that's supposed to help her remember and then she loses that bracelet so like remembering who she is becomes like more and more important the longer we're in the story um which kind of goes to the point like about the fairies like I think we see this in like a lot of fairy stories maybe not so much in like Akatar, but like the importance of fairies and their promises and their like inability to lie I'm kind of more like the cruel prince um but all I could think was like Rose should have asked the king for human food as part of her promise. Like at the beginning, she's like, I want to see my dad. And he's like, sure, you can see him from like 500 feet away. <laughs> That's the problem is if you're not like grown up and versed in how to make fairy deals, then mm-hmm. we see lots of people getting into troubles. Yeah. Yeah. I would have asked for human food so that I wouldn't have to forget everything. Pro tip. <laughs> pro tip. I'm keeping that in mind if I get trapped in a fairy realm. Ask for human food food meant for humans because i'm gonna guess they would give you human food would be like human that people like they would give you cut up bodies or something yeah you might have to be more specific yeah very specific think think like a lawyer (laughs) (laughs) lula's there's this funny part at the beginning in the death day scenes uh where rose comments that lula's sinmago power is bargain hunting and i'm curious what your sinmago powers are That's a really hard one. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick two things because I'm extra special. (laughs) Um, I think I'm really good at cat care, (laughs) caring for cats. I'm mostly my cat, but I also have like read a lot of books about cats and watched a lot of my cat from hells. So I feel like I'm really like, I feel like I could become like a cat behaviorist and that would be my thing. hundred percent. I love that for you. (laughs) i also feel like i'm pretty good at baking but like maybe not as not enough to be like a a superpower but i'm on my way to learning (laughs) what would your superpower be your sinmago power i think i'm very good at making friends Mm. Um, that's a good one yeah and uh being with change i really like change and when things are different and unexpected and spontaneous and stuff I like thrive so maybe that's what it would be they all have their dark side but don't 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 all powers right I think so I mean I don't know that I could use my cat behaviorist abilities for evil but (laughs) I don't know (laughs) any of you people out there want to tell us what your seeing seen mago powers are we'd love to hear them wands away Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. So we have like King Ciro, who is the, I mean, he's the villain. He's just like, what? Just the worst. The bastard king of Adas. He even likes that title. Yeah. Although I'm not a huge fan of that, that title because it like, it implies that there's like a right way to have a family like because like bastard normally implies that you are like <laughs> were born out of wedlock so I'm not a huge fan of the title but <laughs> he likes it in that he thinks he's like like kind of like badass and like shitty or whatever <laughs> like that he's not the rightful person on the throne mm-hmm. and he's flaunting mm-hmm. that with the title that he uses yes um yeah the fucking dads Arco and Edis have a terrible dad <laughs> 
Um, I'm a bit confused about the whole Ciro thing. Like, we got the story in bits and pieces throughout the novel, right? And mm-hmm. I don't think I fully put it together that, like, what he did. So, like, he killed his dad and made his dad into a chair that he sits on. And then he banished his older brother into the other magical realm, not this one. And well, then, into the one that's in Labyrinth Lost. Right, exactly. Into Los Lagos. Which Los I'm, like, Lagos, curious yeah. if they're, like, on an astral plane. Are they, like, next to each other? Is this, like, a multiverse? Anyway, I'm, I digress. And then Ciro, there was, like, a an uprising against him but then like what did he do for the rot to happen like can you help me yes so (laughs) it was a little confusing because there's just like i think maybe one of my problems with this book was that there are a shit ton of characters so it's kind of hard to keep everything like in check in like my head for me um and that made it kind of difficult so i think what if i'm remembering correctly is that he made some kind of promise to Iris and Arco's mom and then murdered her. And like, because he murdered her and like broke his promise to her, she is creating the rot because she needs to get him back. And like, once they kill him, that's why the rot goes away because like Ciro is then reunited with his like murdered wife like the wife that he murdered because <laughs> she like still loves him but she's also like you owe me or whatever that is what we call a dysfunctional relationship yeah if someone murders you like you don't just like be like i still love you bro <laughs> you can change your mind yeah is not tony morrison say like even when people show you who they are believe them i think so yeah i think so this is a good example. <laughs> Murderer is going to murder. Apparently. Yeah. Rose, at one point, when she sees the devastation of the Shuri forest, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, the fairy sprites or the wood sprites or whatever that inhabit it. Um, she says, I'm, like, I'm not accustomed to this type of suffering and compares it to working with her mother in the infirmary. Um. So, like, the difference between being in what is essentially, like, a war zone and then, like, an ER, you know? So, mm-hmm. there is, like, I just wanted to point out that I think Rose is eventually going to have to deal with some secondary trauma stuff. Like, how do you be with that and around it, you know, and stay integrated and in your power? So, that's just what that's stuck out to me. Yeah, and I think we probably see a little bit of that in the epilogue where she's kind of talking about, like, the ups and downs of her family as, you know, we see, like, everyone kind of dealing with, like, all the things that they've been through because, like, everyone in this family has been through something. Um, And she kind of, like, Rose kind of describes that in the epilogue, talking about, like, having good days and bad days. And I think that's good because, like, they do seem like a really, like, wholesome, kind family, but, like, that doesn't mean that there's, like, no suffering going on below the surface that, like, the outside world probably doesn't see. Yeah, exactly. And we do see Rose kind of being this barometer for the whole family's emotional state, you know, mm-hmm. throughout being like, yeah, we don't talk about our feelings, but things aren't okay. Yeah. And maybe it's time to talk about our feelings. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's the tweet. Onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, gender, and ability. This is our segment about power and bodies and how they relate. 
race. So I think we see this in a lot of books and I don't really know how to like, you know, create space for this to change, but everything that's, everything that's evil is described as dark and black. And we see that like with the rot and I know it's not like directly correlated to race, but I think it's like directly correlated to like colorism, which is correlated to race. So I think this is just like kind of something that we see with a lot of fantasy novels and novels in general that I would like to see change. I couldn't agree more. This stuck out to me too, where like, Mm -hmm. because there were a lot of insist, there was a lot of description of the rot. And also of the creatures that came out of it who were also mm-hmm. black in color, correct? Yeah. 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 It's just, this was one of the tropiest, I guess, parts of this. Um, yeah. And I agree with you that I, I'm, I wonder how we can open this up and make f- other, make room for different ways of describing the things that are like causing suffering because they're not dark and black. Let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm getting a little meta outside of the book, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Um, For class, we see that there are a lot of issues in Alas as a result of the King Sarah, not taking any real responsibility for the throne that he stole Um, People are like kind of pretending to be on board with what he's doing. And um, as the farther away you get away from like the castle, what is it called? Something of salt. Castillo Castillo de Sal. Sal. Um, Castillo means castle. And so the farther we get away from that, the more and more we see like the suffering of the people. And like Ciro is having all these parties as opposed to like taking care of his people and making sure they're fed. Um, So I think this was like our biggest like class distinction we see in the in the novel and then we have a lot of people around him who just capitulate and capitulate and Mm -hmm. capitulate Mm -hmm. um yeah he's kind of doing this trick like don't look over there like don't look at the thing behind the curtain that's actually creeping towards us and then the castle is actually crumbling so eventually you do have to look at it but it is this like unwillingness to consider what's going on and how it's affecting the vast majority of people in the realm and how mm-hmm. the few are hoarding resources and then just keep like taking from the land. I think that was another aspect of the rot, right? Where you're just sort of, like keep consuming, which is related mm-hmm. to class in in the way that like all of these parties that the King Zero is throwing. Yeah. And in that vein, we see him like having this like, what do they call it? in And in, um, in Thor Ragnarok, like uh, the tournament of champions, basically. That's right. King That's Ciro right. Is, like making these people fight to the death almost. Um, I completely forgot that that happened at the beginning. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really liked that scene. I thought it was really cool, but it a hundred percent reminded me of Thor Ragnarok, which is like one of my favorite of the Marvel uh, MCU movies. So Uh, love Taika Waititi. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just fantastic. So good. Yeah. I like those. I like the, I thought the scenes towards the beginning were a little bit better than the scenes towards the end. I don't know. I think I liked the the initial part of the book and the wind up better than the like denouement. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, part of that was that there was like a lot of traveling and going places, which is cool because I guess people want to see the world that they're set in, but because there's not that much happening from place to place, um, I was just like, okay. 
And I actually have a reason that I think that might be the case for this book, but I'll try and remember to talk about it later. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> Let's talk about gender. On page 194, Lynn says, when there isn't a place for you in the world, you simply have to carve it out for yourself or carve it out yourself. I'm a brew hex. Um, with the help of their dad, who turns out is Rose's dad. Lynn has such a supportive family and Lynn is part Bruhex and part Ava, which we haven't seen like any, um, like not biracial, like by species mm-hmm. characters yet. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting. And I think um, it's very, <laughs> so Zoraida Cordova writes some um star wars fiction and now like obviously this wasn't like like a luke leia situation because lynn didn't and rose didn't seem to have feelings for each other but it was like very star warsy and that like they share a dad and it's like a surprise sibling and i was just like oh so star wars (laughs) (laughs) we just started watching well we finished the mandalorian season one and started season two so yes it is very star wars i agree yeah. being back in that yeah. universe a little bit you totally and also with like the portal magic too and mm-hmm. and rose being called like the siphon of galaxies there was like a little star stuff going on yeah like kind of a lot <laughs> but i really liked the character of lynn they were um a good addition i think to have like a friend for rose to have that she felt a connection with and you know later realized was a sibling but I think also that stands to show kind of like that people can kind of choose their own family like you make it's like a it's a a choice to be part of a family even if you're like whether or not you're related like people don't have to like form these connections and be in relationship with each other and that's something that Rose and Lynn decided to do Um, and I really like that aspect of the book completely agree Yes, yes, yes. Do you want to talk about ability, body, minds, etc.? Sure. Um, in the scene at the oasis, kind of two thirds at the towards the end of the novel, where everyone's like hanging out in their victory or their pre their pre war feast or whatever pre battle feast. Um, there's a scene where everyone's hanging out and diving into the pond, and they're all swimming naked and. I just liked the little moments of like body love and acceptance that were woven throughout Rose's exposition, you know, talking about her soft belly and things like that. I just thought that was really lovely um, for to that, for that to be in the narrative voice of an, like a teen girl. Mm -hmm. So I just like that part a lot. Yeah. It was sweet. Papa Mortiz when he's, Rose describes him as like vacant and kind of like looking far away or, you know, not really being able to engage with his family, even though he's right there, they're right there um, when he's in like Brooklyn or Queens. But then when he is in Adas, Rose describes him as awake. And this is reminding me of some of the stuff that I'm reading about PTSD and CPTSD or complex PTSD about how um, when we get back into those, like trauma rewires us so much that when we go back there, that can be when we feel alive or when you're like, even if you're just like describing it in your mind, like then you feel more activated again. Whereas, you know, if you're, when you're out of that, then you just don't feel like you can access, you know, your family or your connections or anything like that. So this just reminded me a lot about um, 
Yeah, how, I mean, the fame, like the body keeps the score, basically. Yeah, and I think part of this also has to do a lot with, um, uh, is his name Octavio? Um, He went by Octavio in In Adas, Adas, I think. And that's why Lynn's name is Lynn Octavio. Either way, I guess, um, so Rose's dad, <laughs> because I don't remember his, like, I don't know what name he prefers <laughs> no. um, or goes by. Mm-hmm. Um, he also, like, a part of this, I think, probably comes from knowing that he has a family in two places. Like, he doesn't know what happened to Lynn's mom and or what happened to Lynn or what's going on with them. And... I think that makes it difficult too for when he's in either place. Cause when he's in Adas, it's super easy. Like he forgets about his Mortise family that's in Queens slash Brooklyn. And then when he is in Queens slash Brooklyn, like he cannot forget about his family that he's left back in Adas. So I think it's like very hard for him to be in, in the human realm. Yeah. Um, it's a very because, hard situation. Yeah. And because he can remember when he's there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Good point. Because in Adas, you forget. That is helpful. Well, not helpful. Mm -hmm. That causes a lot of problems also. Yeah, but also helpful because then you don't have to think about, like, the bad stuff that happened somewhere else or, like, the fact that you're not with a different family, you know, Mm -hmm. in in his case. Another thing that made me think of um, ability in particular is that this, the king collects all these, like, superheroes, basically, with a bunch of powerful magical abilities and they're kept in they're imprisoned and made to fight like you were talking about earlier um it's just just like a the like powerful person wanting to collect a lot of other powerful beings in order to then like use them for their own plans it reminded me of very like kind of like x-men or you know justice league things like that um where how these but i like that the actual guardians or whatever decided that they were going to do things their own way instead of just being used yeah it's very like superhero tropey to like make your your army of superheroes (laughs) guardians of the galaxy Finally, it's time for Shipwrecked, a segment about sexuality, asexuality, sex, romance, and relationships. And sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own. I think we're seeing Rose explore her sexuality a little bit. She obviously has feelings for Arco. She has her first kiss in Abbas. Um, But I also get the impression that she liked Iris as well. And she talks about having a crush on a bunch of people at her death day party. Um, So I don't really know what that means for Rose, but it was... Um, fun to see that and see like her just kind of being like that person's cute and that person's cute and that person's cute. <laughs> yeah very like it was real adorable 15 which is mm-hmm. great yeah <laughs> i think one of the most relation important relationships that we see explored in this novel is rose and her dad and how um like trust is broken and then rebuilt and how it's not an easy process. It's very painful and it takes a while. Um, But I'm glad that I liked how in the exposition, it shows Rose working through all her different emotions. Like I'm mad at him because of this and this and this, and then feeling and then understanding a little bit more and then finding compassion and being able to um, 
yeah, just get a little bit of perspective, I guess. And I, I like that they showed the trajectory of this and how the relationship changes over time. And, and it's okay to set different boundaries at different moments with people. Yeah. And it also kind of shows that like relationships, even with your family require work, like they don't have to be automatic. And like, I think in this novel, in this family, like family is very important to them, but I think we also see, and maybe Nova is kind of like a good example of this is that like, you don't have to make the decision. Like you don't have to decide to choose like your um, family, like the family that's by blood. Um, So I kind of like, I appreciated seeing Rose work through this, but also that we have like this other, like that we also have the depiction of Nova saying like, I don't really choose that family. I like have chosen another family. So it's good to see like both sides of this. Yeah. And then that means it's no longer the Mortiz sisters. It's now the Mortiz siblings, basically, because yeah. of it's a a gendered, diverse, a diverse gender array of folks. So, yay. Yeah, um, I'm excited and hopeful to see more Nova in the future because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think he's my fave. Yeah, well, actually, agreed. maybe Lula is my fave, but I really like Nova. And I think I really like we get some of Nova in every book except for this one is like no Nova at all almost. And so I was like, oh, I actually really miss those interactions with him. Yeah, I think that that's one of the best developed characters and that how it's like the chemistry. Cordova has really developed the chemistry between the family and the siblings. And that's like really cool to see. Which is a good segue to Kill Your Darlings, because that's what we're going to do now. Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind. Rose is only 15, and I think that changes a lot about how we get this story. In the first two books, our POV is with Alex and Lula, who are older. Um, Lula is like in her senior year of high school, and I think that um, Alex is just like a year behind her. And part of the reason I may have liked this book less is that we're following around a younger character, which doesn't really fit the vibe of the first two books for me. I also don't read a lot of books with like younger ca- like characters this young. Like 15 is pretty young. Um, I do think Cordova did a good job like describing Rose and like getting into her mindset. But I also think that for me, that's like not really what I enjoy reading, which is fine. Um but yeah, it was interesting to have like this trilogy that has like these two older characters and then to go to someone so young, like she's about to, like she's in her freshman year of high school. Like that's really young. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's in the hero's journey, so to speak. Like we're kind of, a, we're a little bit earlier on with Rose, you know, also I think because she's a youngest sibling that changes the dynamic of the book too, right? Where you're seeing the pressure of the, of the siblings that came before um well now she isn't the youngest isn't lynn younger than her but anyway yes um we're very she's very much in this like finding your voice and power does like she says at one point at the beginning no one taught me to speak a truth that is uncomfortable and we and that's kind of the journey that we see her taking i think she reminds me a lot of kitty from um to all the boys and like in my like when I think about that I'm like oh I don't really want a book from Kitty's perspective but I enjoy having her in the books right right <laughs> you know what I mean so it was just like a weird voice to go to mm-hmm. for me I want to say thank you to Zoraida Cordova for actually addressing having to pee while on a magical adventure I thought that was funny I like those little candid moments in Rose's exposition where she's like I regret not asking Alex about this 
or she was like i regret not asking alex like oh my god did she get her period while she was in los lagos like what am i gonna do (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah that'd be rough yeah i mean like those sorts of hygiene products aren't available to everyone so to all the people who menstruate something that like i haven't had to worry about for example you know yeah I was not sure where to put this, but I think we might get a Nova book. He's going to the Dominican Republic to try and rid himself of an inherited blood curse. And that sounds like an excellent premise for a book. So we can hope. I really hope we do um, because I miss Nova and I would like to see more of him. (laughs) I just want to add this thing that I was thinking of earlier. So I mentioned earlier that Zoraida Cordova writes star wars fiction and actually i think that might be part of why i did not enjoy this book as much because in star wars a a lot especially like if you watch the mandalorian like you don't get that much story from week to week you get a lot of like these like little side adventures and that don't really like you know that they're gonna add to the plot eventually but like in the moment you're kind of like why are we doing like why are we here um, and I think that's how I kind of felt with this book and maybe why I didn't enjoy it as much. Like I'm watching the Mandalorian, but not because like, I guess just because it's part of the star Wars universe and I don't want to like miss out, you know? So I kind of like, I think that's what I didn't enjoy about this book was that where you're like on these little mini side quests yeah. instead of like the whole big quest. Yeah. Pretty so episodic. For me, that's just like my thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I only watch the Mandalorian for baby Yoda. I love that little <laughs> thing. I love it. There's crystals, tarot, I have some tourmaline, and the tower card, because those both come up in the book, and I thought that, well, I'll just bring them out while I'm recording. So yeah, love that shit. I'm pretty basic that way. It happens to the best of us. (laughs) (laughs) Recommend if you like. Probably all kinds of fairy stories, I think. Um... I wrote down Cruel Prince, I think, because of the fairy lore. Both of them kind of stick close to it. Um, Akatar, because I don't think I could ever think of fairy stories without thinking of it. <laughs> and Enola Holmes on Netflix stars Millie Bobby Brown. But I think they're kind of like young characters. They're like really smart and clever and just like dealing with being the youngest sibling um so i think if you like this book you'll probably also like enola holmes it was a sweet movie it was really cute before we end it's time for real talk did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept system or trend that you hadn't before i have something um we talked about it a little bit earlier but being honest about our feelings is just so crucial and rose's um in in she seems like an empath in the way that maybe that's like an analogous to her like siphon abilities i don't know but she just like can feel around for the what's going on emotionally and like what people aren't saying like the disconnect between their words and their and like the vibe they're actually putting off and i just think that that in and of itself is should be recognized as like the power that it is and then also that everyone should be responsible for their own emotions (laughs) and that we should be honest about them Thanks for listening to The Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Dragon Republic by R.F. Kuang. 
As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the Library Coven. You can post or tweet about the show using the hashtag Critically Reading and the Library Coven, and you can contact us via email at thelibrarycoven at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the Library Coven uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we would mega appreciate it if you rate and review the show and also spread the word recommend it to someone else that you think would enjoy it if you're able to support our labor financially you can make a one-time donation on coffee you can support us monthly on patreon we're doing a pay what you can from one dollar and above so you set whatever you want to um, for our patreon and we have minisodes bonus ups early episodes and we're gonna make some swag and shit probably someday so that's cool. If you're on Patreon, you'll be the first to know about it. And you can also support the show by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Affiliate page. <laughs> Until next time, stay magical. Kelly is recording on Cheyenne, Ute, and Arapaho land. Jesse is recording on Peoria, Kaskakia, Teankasha, Wea, Miami, Muscotin, Odawa, Sauk, Meskwaki, Kickapoo, Potawatomi, Ojibwe, and Chickasaw land. <laughs>